Hey everyone, this is Giordano from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government Ad series. This episode of the podcast is recorded on Wurundjeri land and it acts as the companion to our latest Honest Government Ad about the new trilateral pact between Australia, the US and the UK, known as Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. Now that we've completed our 20-year mission in Afghanistan by handing it back to the Taliban, it's time to blindly follow the American Empire into another massive shit show. Introducing our new military partnership, AUKUS. So the response to this Honest Government ad has been interesting. On the one hand, we've been accused of being shills for the Chinese government by criticizing the AUKUS alliance. On the other, we've been accused of spreading anti-China lies to aid the US empire. Which, when you think of it, is an accurate reflection of how there is a whole lot of bullshit on both sides of this issue. So I'll start off by reminding everyone that we are 100% supported by our audience on the Patreons and nobody else. And that whilst we can be critical of the Chinese government, as we are of the Australian and US governments, we have nothing but respect and goodwill for the peoples of China. Thankfully, these polarized responses constitute a minority of people. And yet this minority is extremely loud and vocal in wanting us all to freak out and pick a side. A path which invariably leads to war, which benefits nobody other than the evil motherfucking weapons industry, rather than keep a level head and understand the complexity of the situation. Which is why for this podcast, I chose a guest whom I feel reflects a sensible and evidence-based rather than ideologically driven perspective on the deteriorating relationship between Australia and China. Alan Ben. Following a career spanning nearly 30 years in the Australian Public Service, during which he was Chief of Staff to Minister for Climate Change and Industry Greg Combe and Senior Advisor to the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator Penny Wong, Alan is currently the Director of International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. I asked Alan to help us better understand the AUKUS Alliance, what are the implications for Australia and our region, and what would he have us do differently. I hope you enjoy our chat, and I'll catch you on the other side. G'day, Alan. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast. It's great to have you here. G'day, Giordano. Good to be here. So it's been about three weeks since the AUKUS Pact, this uh, trilateral um, security pact between Australia, the US and the UK was publicly announced, much to the surprise of everyone, especially the French. And a lot has been written about it. Some have praised it as a smart thing to do to counter a supposedly rising China, while others have criticized it as a dumb or reckless move. And we can't even seem to all agree on whether AUKUS is a historic and consequential thing or just a bit of showmanship from Scotty from announcements. So we're going to get into this in more detail. We're going to unpack AUKUS a little bit more. There's a bunch of things to say about it. But before we do that, um, I just wanted to uh, raise this and I wanted to get your opinion on it. The response we've had to this Honest Government ad has been interesting, if somewhat predictable. We've been accused of being at the same time both in the pay of the Chinese government as well as the US State Department by helping them spread their respective propaganda about each other which I find really interesting because it's another example of how today we seem to inhabit two completely separate realities. In one reality, China's government does nothing wrong. It is pure and virtuous, and it is a victim of US imperialism. In the other extreme reality, China's government is a bully and an evil empire bent on world domination. I suspect this is partly a reflection of the way China is covered in our media. On the one hand, you have the Murdoch media hyping up fears of China invading Australia, which is clearly bullshit. And on the other hand, progressive media is often silent about the actions of the Chinese government, such as in the Ch South China Sea. 
So be, before we get into AUKUS in more detail, my question for you, Alan, is where do you see the truth lying between these two opposite extremes? Well, they certainly are opposite extremes. Uh, the idea of a utopian China is just as far-fetched as the idea of a dystopian China. Uh, the reality, it's, it's not really in between because reality doesn't exist on some kind of linear spectrum between you know, the very, very best and the very, very worst. Reality is a very complex, multidimensional thing. So when you look at China, what do you see? Uh, you see uh, an energetic, uh, highly dynamic society which has managed to pull itself out of poverty in two generations and build a middle class of better than half a billion people. Its economic transformation has been nothing short of miraculous, even more miraculous than Scott Morrison's election uh, because the odds were so, so strongly stacked against it. But the, the deep application of, of sound policy at the beginning and huge uh, resource investment has brought China to the point now where it is the dominant economy of Asia and within probably the next 20 years will be the world's biggest economy. So at the same time, China has paid a lot of high prices for that. Uh, it has embarked upon quite serious social and political controls on its own population. It most particularly has embarked upon uh, actions against some of its own religious and ethnic minorities, premised on a need to protect its borders, interestingly, against, against terrorism, because uh, at some points, at least, the Taliban have been interested in fomenting Islamic terrorism in Western China, and China has responded to that in a way that many people think is disproportionate, whether it's really any more disproportionate except in scale, uh, when compared with Australia's response to boat people, that could lead to a very interesting discussion. But the point we ought to make is that, like every other country in the world, China does a whole lot of things that are really stupid. Um, it conducts its diplomacy in an in a often very juvenile kind of way, particularly for a, a country with such a long intellectual history and tradition, it often appears to conduct its diplomacy without thinking about what the possible branches and sequels might be, what the consequences might be. I really do wonder now if China would have embarked upon the very strong uh, economic actions against Australia last year, if it had foreseen the possibility of something like AUKUS or something like the Quad getting greater credibility internationally in response to what is deemed to be Chinese aggression. I, I, I don't look at it uh, as being somewhere between uh, a, a wonderful China and a very bad China. I look at it as being the China that we've got in the world at the moment. It bears a very strong historical relationship with the China that was there 500 years ago. And it is a China which is going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to want to be able to walk its walk uh, on the international stage. And that is something we've just got to get used to. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me that. Um, that's a really interesting um, 
um, analysis of, of of where you pitch our reality. And I like the fact that you said reality is a very complex, uh, you know, uh, thing in itself. Um, but uh, there's no doubt that it, it's a very messy, complicated situation. And on, often I'm, what I'm seeing is people like very simple. People seem to have a very uh, very sure and a sense of understanding of the situation. And I'm like, my approach to dealing with this was like, wow, this is genuinely quite a confusing and difficult to understand um, situation. And there is, as we say in the video, there's, there's bullshit on, on both sides uh, and the, the real losers, um, at least uh, um, in, in this, uh, yeah, well, for the AUKUS Alliance uh, is the Australian people, because we're spending a lot of money on this deal, which um, we're going to talk about now in more detail. I wanted to ask you, you know, we're paying, let's talk about the nuclear subs and, and all of that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a massive price tag attached to that. And it's not just a cost in terms of dollars. Um, there is also a potential loss of independence of our own defense policy um, uh, and as well as other things. So, um, can you talk a little bit about um, that? That's one of the criticisms that's been raised, um, is that our decision to acquire these nuclear submarines shackles us to US or UK foreign policy. Can you unpack that a little bit? How do, how do you see that impacting on us? Look, we are very tightly linked into the United States already. I mean, with or without nuclear submarines, we are very, very dependent on the United States for our uh, overall command and control system, because in this part of the 21st century, our command and control system piggybacks on that of the United States. It's, it's one of the reasons that we have a place like Pine Gap. So uh, our military systems are already in many respects quite deeply embedded in the military systems of the United States. We acquire um, American built uh, jet fighters, um, they're an international collaboration, of course, but all of the intellectual property is vested in the United States, uh, in Lockheed, and in some of its partners. So, you know, we're very dependent already on US Air Force systems. The same applies to the Navy, although we're, we're getting uh, hulls that are designed in Britain, all of the stuff that goes into them are American systems. And we are constantly focused on interoperability with the Americans, not just the ability to operate our forces together, which is what interoperability actually means, but we think that it means having the same systems so that we can operate in exactly the same way. Now, if that's not a loss in independence, I'd, I'd like to know what is, um, that, that we are not only dependent for the most fundamental uh, logistic support from the United States, but we're also dependent on the United States for the very systems by which we operate uh, our equipment. So I think that there is a measure of loss of sovereignty. Uh, and if we go down the nuclear submarine route, then I think that becomes uh, much more marked uh, simply because we will have a propulsion system over which we have no technical control whatsoever. I don't think that's such a great idea. Sorry, and why, why not? Why not just shackle ourselves to US foreign policy? Is it, what do you see as being the problem with that? Oh, well, I, for me, I don't particularly want to participate in US elections. Um, I mean, the moment you cede your sovereignty, you may as well ask the Americans to stick another star on their flag. Um, I, I think that there's something actually rather craven 
in constantly looking to the United States to care about us and to care for us and to carry us along when we have plenty of agency of our own. I mean, we are actually quite a powerful country. But the way in which our politicians represent us to ourselves and to the world, you'd be forgiven to, for thinking that we are a middle-ranking power in the same way as, say, Estonia and Latvia are middle-ranking powers. Now, they actually fall bang in the middle. They're at 97 and 98 in the world pecking order. But we're down in number 13. You know, what's small and insignificant about being a continent with the 13th biggest economy, um, eight of our universities featuring in, on some accounts, the top 100 in the world. Uh, we have four of the most habitable and, habitable and amenable cities in the world. We have a, a fairly inclusive population. We're a, a pretty well-educated population. On all of the indicators of national power, excepting only population, we rank very high. So why cede that to the United States? Simply because we walk around being frightened. I don't get it. It's, it's, it, I think we could have a whole conversation about that. It's a, it's a really interesting uh, um, uh, philosophical uh, question there. But um, I'm, I'm going to move on because I want to talk about another concern with AUKUS. One of, this, one, um, this is a criticism that has come from the likes of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and others who have raised concerns about the AUKUS submarine deal being a terrible decision for the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Some have responded to this in turn by saying, oh, that's rubbish. The subs are nuclear powered, not nuclear armed. But if I've understood correctly, the concerns are real because not all nuclear powered subs are the same. So, Alan, can you help us understand the difference between HEU and LEU naval reactors and the implications for non nuclear non-proliferation? Uh, I think that the implications are really yet to be discovered. Uh, there is an enormous amount of complication attaching to Australia's observance of the safeguards regime, which is managed by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Australia has traditionally been a very, very strong supporter in the, uh, the, the work of the IAEA in strengthening global safeguards mechanisms as a way of reducing the risk of nuclear proliferation. It doesn't reduce the risk of nuclear war, but it does reduce the risk of more countries being able to conduct nuclear war. So we don't yet know exactly what our responsibilities are going to be to the IAEA. And that is going to be, I think, a very tricky negotiation with both the IAEA and with Britain and the United States. The reason being, and this goes to the beginning of your question, the difference between low enriched uranium and highly enriched uranium. Low enriched uranium is the traditional fuel for, for peaceful uh, reactors that produce electricity. Uh, with those sorts of reactors, you replace the fuel rods uh, as the uranium becomes depleted. And because you're using low enriched, which is um, you know, around about five to 10%, not, it, it won't blow up but it has enough uranium in it to drive the turbines that you need to produce um, electricity. If you want a reactor which is going to be able to operate for many decades 
without requiring any refueling, that is, you don't have to replace the uranium rods, then you've obviously got to go for a much, much higher octane fuel. Uh, and in this case, you go for high enriched uranium, which is the kind of uranium uh, that you would put into the starter mechanisms for a thermonuclear device. It creates the plasma that then will allow um, a, a, a fusion bomb to go off. And we're talking about like 93 enriched, like 93% enriched. That's oh, yes. Completely that's different right. uh, and, game. And, and for other very small reactors, such as operate on spacecraft, you might actually use plutonium uh, to, to drive those little reactors for the reason that they'll go for 50, 60, 70 years at a very small volume and provide all the energy that that particular satellite needs. So uh, the reason for using uh, what is you know, weapons-grade uh, explosive materials, uranium or plutonium, is simply because you've got a vast energy resource in a very small mass. Uh, that's the whole purpose of it. Mm -hmm. So in order to understand why you would use um, high-enriched uranium, you would use that because you're seeking to have a small reactor which is able to operate for very, very many years. Uh, at the same time, a reactor which is completely reliable and has a massively long life. So you're much better off uh, from a point of view of efficiency in having uh, a reactor with high enriched uranium, which will lower your costs over time, uh, but also give you much, much more efficiency. The downside of that, though, is pretty clear. First of all, you've got to declare what you've got. And one of the concerns I have is whether or not the Brits or the Americans are going to want anybody else to know exactly at what levels they enrich the uranium for their own submarine reactors. Uh, that's a question for them. It's not a question for us. But we will have safeguards responsibilities to answer those questions. I think the second issue is what happens? I mean, where does the indemnity lie if something does happen with those reactors? Are they ours, our reactors? Do we take all the risk? Um, I don't think that they give evidence for a Chernobyl uh, coming into Sydney Harbour every, every day, as, as Adam Barnt said. But equally, there is some risk to it, which is why we have particular rules about nuclear-powered access to our ports. And it has to do with what if? What if there is an accident? How do you get the boat out? What do you do with what's in it? Now, these are very big questions around which we have no answers at the moment. But more than that, uh, we're dealing with something which is at present so open-ended that we don't know what we're getting, where we're getting it from, what it's going to cost, and what we're going to use it for if and when we ultimately get it. Now, this is, this is some castle in Spain, in my view. Um, it's, it is unimagined at the moment, which means that for all the rest of it, it's unimaginable. We have no idea how to put our minds around what the AUKUS partnership is intended, or at least said, to deliver to us. Now, that's bad policy. There are big issues here, I think, Giordano, and they haven't been put out to the electorate. I think they've, they've treated the electorate uh, as though the electorate are simply a, a bunch of fools and that the electorate will go along with this because uh, the government knows best. We're in a heap of bother with China that's going to come and attack us. And my word, they better watch out because in 
they're going to have to wait 25 years before we can get up there and just give them a, a really big whatever we're going to give them. Yeah, they better be scared. Um, so, Alan, I mean, my question to you, is, is, it, is it bad policy? You've described all the reasons why it could be described as that. Or is the intent of this completely different to what, you know, we would expect it to be? Is it not really about Australia's defence? I mean, does this make Australia safer? If not, what what could the, some of the possible other intents being here? Like, for example, Scott Morrison is, is quite a, a shrewd, uh, political marketer, as we all know, and we're heading to an, a federal election, a crucial federal election. Is there a sense that this is more about strengthening his position? Is there is there a, a sense that this could be used to wedge labor on national security? Um, and even thinking about, you know, internationally, is it a sense that he's trying to get something from the US and the UK uh, in exchange for this uh, uh, an announcement, which has really nothing to do with with the, with the situation we all think it's about, with about China or anything like that, but more about Scott's uh, political uh, career and potentially also the interests of the US. I mean, are we being played by the US as a pawn in their own shit show with uh, China? Look, all of those, all of those things. <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is, as I said earlier, reality is infinitely complex. And you can often do things for a multiple of reasons. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, this particular government is very good at is making people feel frightened. Um, they're exploiting China mercilessly at the domestic level to make people feel nervous about China's long-term intentions, even though China has never threatened Australia militarily in 3,000 years. And why it would want to start now there's no explanation for that. But, you know, the, the reds under the beds of the 1950s have given way now to sort of the yellow peril. Uh, if they're not under the beds, they're in our roof because they're listening into us all the time. They're uh, conducting cyber warfare all the time. Uh, so we have this complexity of fear mongering uh, factors that play into the way in which you then want to position yourself on the back of a security frame to win the next election, rather than your incapacity to deal with what has hit most Australians very hard, either economically or physically, and that is, of course, the COVID-19 virus. And so, uh, I mean, the government's performance on that has been pretty abysmal. Uh, as it was dealing with the, the big fires at the beginning of last year. I mean, virtually every major episode that has confronted Australians in the last two years has been badly dealt with by this government. Now, that would count against them normally. So why not throw a big distraction grenade into the, into the argument and say, we're really going to have an election now about being able to take China on? And I think that that also relates to the third point that you made, and that is the attempt to wedge labour. Because uh, any sensible politician, and there are a few of them in the Labor Party, any sensible politician would see that uh, an open-ended check on an open-ended agreement to an open-ended capability, which may never occur, is actually bad policy because there is no evidence available for the satisfactory nature of what you think you're going to get. Part of the conversation we had earlier. So what Labor has done on this is to abduct, 
you know, ducked it completely by saying, oh, well, that's very interesting. Yes, oh, yes, that's good. Uh, yes, we think that's a good idea. Um, you've got 18 months to study it. Well, when we become government, we'll give it some study too. Uh, now, my hope would be that they give it some very serious study and call it out for what it is, which is uh, an arrant stupidity and one which we can be friends with Britain and friends with the Americans, but that doesn't mean that we've got to buy nuclear-powered submarines. It does mean that we've got to work with both of them in strengthening international trade relationships. It means that. It means we've got to be able to have uh, a high level of transparency about where investment flows go. Uh, it means that we've got to have a stable international banking and economic system. It means all of those things are all right. And they're things on which Britain and the United States and Australia can play really constructive roles. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. <laughs> well, at the end, of the, I'm glad to see that even you at the end of the day, you know, you've got question marks in your head because um, that's, that's, you know, there are a lot of questions that, that, are, that are raised by this. Um, and, you know, including the one which um, I mentioned at the end, sorry, I threw that into the, into the, I kind of combined two questions together, but the, the last point is like, are we even being played? Is it even Scott Morrison that's playing us or is Scott Morrison being played as well? by the Biden administration in throwing us on the front line with these hunter killer submarines going, yeah, you guys join the fight. Like what, what the hell <laughs> It's like, you know, uh, is there a sense that we are also being played as a pawn in all this, or do we know what we, does Scott Morrison even know what he's doing? Well, that's a question for Scott Morrison. Yeah. Um, I, I I'll couldn't ask possibly, him come on. yeah, I couldn't possibly imagine what goes on in Scott Morrison's <laughs> brain, but uh, I think what's happening here is that, Britain, the United States and Australia are all looking for somewhat different things. Uh, Britain is looking for some form of global relevance and uh, its departure from Brexit, it's now working out. And commentators like me were saying this five, six years ago, it is proving to be the disaster that we thought it was going to be. And so Britain is now looking to shore up its global stocks by being once again a global player. Yeah, make Britain great again. Good luck with that. Uh, Britain is on a trajectory at the moment to become the kind of country which Portugal became in about the beginning of the, the 19th century. Just nice little country, good place to go and visit, makes very, very good wine. But um, who? Oh, Portugal. So Britain, I think, has done itself a lot of damage and they want to be able to sort of play a global role, and which is why HMS Queen Elizabeth is now sailing up uh, into the sort of the Sea of Japan or wherever it's going to uh, display Britain's flag uh, for the first time in about 40 years uh, um, in, in East Asia. The Americans are looking to play Britain and Australia into the old white man's club as part of their constant effort to keep China wrong-footed. Uh, the way in which Taiwan plays out uh, is simply about keeping um, China wrong-footed, uh, keeping China as unbalanced strategically as the United States can manage. Whether that lends itself to long-term peace and stability, I rather doubt, but it is a short-term trick that you can uh, play while ever you think you can play it but it's not a long-term strategy. And for Australia, we're trying a bit of everything. Uh, we're trying to indicate to the, the 
government of China that we're a very serious military player, along with the Americans, uh, that uh, we are going to be able to change our defence policy from defending Australia directly to taking the war to their front door rather than fighting it on our front door. It's a big statement, by the way, to say that, but that's what we're sort of indicating, but something we can't possibly do unless the whole of the Seventh Fleet and the Pacific Fleet are fully engaged in that. And we are simply uh, a pimple on the arse of progress uh, in, in trying to play a serious role in that kind of warfare. So we're all looking for different things. It's, it's as though we're a, a threesome somewhere or other, all in the same bed, but all entirely different dreams. It's not clear who's getting fucked, though. That's the that's the that's the interesting question. <laughs> all right. Um, thanks for that, uh, Alan. Look, um, you know, we've spoken about a lot, a lot of uh, the criticism, and the problem with this uh, with this agreement with AUKUS. I'd like to end with, um, you know, what do you see as the solution? Uh, if this isn't it, uh, what is the right approach? If not nuclear subs and tying ourselves to the yes, what would be a better way of of, of dealing with uh, Australia's place in the in the Pacific region in the twenty first century? Our relationship with China. What would you do? Uh, this is a huge question that you've just put, Giordano. Um, my starting point is has got two principal elements to it. The first one is we've got to know who we are and what we stand for and what we want. And I don't think we know that. Uh, I certainly don't think we know who we are because if we did, we would have long ago um, made ourselves into a single unified country with full reconciliation with the first peoples of Australia. And that's, that's a, not, it's not even a work in progress at the moment. There's so much more that's to be done. We don't know really what we stand for. We sometimes can say what we don't stand for but that's not interesting. Uh, you know, we don't stand for the oppressions of other peoples. We say we stand for democracy, but I mean, what kind of a democracy actually operates in some of the people whose democracies we praise? Um, you know, they, it, it's, a, it's a funny word, democracy, and it means whatever the user wants it to mean. The second element uh, to it is not only just knowing who we are and what we want and, and what we stand for. The second element is, knowing the world in which we live. And we seem to imagine that the world in which we live is a world which is inevitably going to see the outbreak of a massive war between the United States and China. I don't accept that. I don't accept it at all. The world in which we live is a world that has got uh, half a dozen really important rising nations who are our immediate neighbours with with which we've normally got on pretty well. It, sometimes it could be improved uh, and sometimes there've been sort of uh, unfortunate downturns in the relationship, but by and large, we have been able to get on reasonably well with our immediate neighbors like Indonesia and then Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines. I mean, we've been engaged with the Philippines since the second world war. And yet it's always a new country whenever some foreign minister goes there, they're just discovering Philippines for the first time. We're defiantly monolingual. Um, you know, the Europeans are not monolingual. I mean, uneducated people may well be, but you know, if you travel in Scandinavia, very few people there can't speak three or four languages. 
everybody in Switzerland, which is a very small country, speaks a minimum of three languages. The French don't like speaking English much, but they can speak it pretty well, much better than most English can speak French. Uh, the same goes for Germany and Spain. Uh, Italy is not all that great in foreign languages, uh, but you come to Australia and half the time we can't even understand the English we speak to each other. So we've got quite a long way to go in being able just to communicate to the countries that are in our region because we're so defiantly monolingual. But we compound that by making assumptions about the cultural dynamics of Southeast Asia without going and, and having a good look at how they really operate, um, how their, their sort of community consensuses are built. And they do that all the time. Uh, how they're able to uh, deal with different ethnicities, um, how they, they're not Christian societies. So it's not sort of love one another as I have loved you. That's, that's not how they have a fundamental uh, principle of ethical behaviour, but they do have a fundamental principle of not harming other people, a very Buddhist principle, but we don't get that. We, we just don't understand the dynamics of, of cultural behaviours across Asia. And when you are in such profound ignorance as we are about the world in which we live, well, then all we can do is to respond to our nightmares. And and what we're doing in Australia is we're not only responding to our nightmares, but we're actually investing in our nightmares. We're building our nightmares, giving ourselves a totally dystopian world in which we think we're going to have to somehow or other survive by playing into dystopia. Now, that's not what Thomas More had in mind when he wrote Utopia. He had in mind that, that just as we're perfectible, so is the world, and we ought to get on with it you know, make the world a better place. Uh, that's probably not quite so fashionable at the moment, probably sounds very sentimental or romantic or wet, or whatever it's called. But if we don't think that way, then the only thing we can do is continue to reach for our cudgel and our sword and behave as though we're cavemen. And that sort of seems to be the paradigm for the moment. Alan, uh, that's a beautiful vision that that you've painted, but and and uh, and I like it. I, I I want to subscribe to that. What does it look like in practice, though? Like as an alternative to AUKUS, if we embrace, if we have a better sense of who we are and and our place in the world, and and a better understanding of 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 the societies in our neighbourhood, how would we be responding to this in in practical terms? Okay, it's a good question because we have institutions that already exist that we should be investing in as hard as we can. We already have ASEAN, which is, it's often talked down by Western commentators as simply being a, a, a talk shop. And they do a lot of talking. But talking is what you do when you are trying to resolve problems and avoid misperception, misapprehension. You talk. And you might talk for a long time. It might take you a a couple of years to work out exactly what it is that one country is looking for vis-a-vis -vis another. Uh, and at what cost it might be wanting to uh, reach its objectives, costs to itself as well as costs to the other parties. So ASEAN already exists and it's, uh, 
It's a good institution to invest in. Sorry to interrupt you. Could you just explain what ASEAN Li is? Oh, the association. Sorry, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Uh, it's been alive now for for about fifty five years, I think. But anyway, over half a century, uh, and it, it came about when the five older members of this organisation. There are ten of them now, but the five original ones. Uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and the Philippines, all decided that they ought to have a regional association so that they wouldn't fight each other. It came about not long after the separation between Malaysia and Singapore out of the Malaysian Federation. And it was important that they had some organizational and institutional structures to maintain the peace and to build prosperity. Now that's, that's a noble aim. And it's one that Australia has been supporting since the early seventies but not nearly vigorously enough. What we'd rather do is go and have Osmin talks in Washington than to go into Southeast Asia and talk to our neighbours about how we might be involved in the growth of their economies and how they might be involved in growing our economy. That seems to me to be a much more sensible thing. It's after all what the Europeans have done. The Europeans weren't rushing off to Washington all the time, looking to see how they were going to defend themselves. They formed NATO with America in it, of course, but they more than that formed the EU, which is probably the strongest defence against warfare that Europe has got. So we should be thinking the same, that the more you invest in prosperity, the more you invest in stability, the more you invest in, in the, the well-being of the citizens of the region, the far less likely you are to start building each other up. But if you just let things wither on the vine, you let misunderstandings grow, you form alliances or you form uh, partnerships with countries that don't even live here, making it look as though we're frightened of the neighbourhood, that we think they're all either sort of stark raving mad or dangerous, then it's no wonder that we might be sort of on the margins of the way in which Asia manages itself. And that's not a good position for us to be in. And equally, you have the same sorts of considerations with China. Of course, China is difficult. Of course, it's an infinitely complex country. Of course, it's ambitious. So, so what do you do about it? You talk about it, it's what your diplomacy is for. And at the same time, you do have a credible defence capability. And it's not, again, as though they're alternatives. They actually go together. That you indicate to the region that you're serious about your own security, that you expect them to be serious about their security, and that you talk to each other about it, and you exercise your security apparatuses together. It's not rocket science, you know. Thanks, Alan. I think that's a really great place to uh, end this conversation. I, it kind of brings us back to the very start where I, I mentioned that we seem to be living in these uh, very extreme realities. On the one hand, China bad, uh, global domination. On the other hand, uh, you know, China's done nothing wrong. And, you know, and I like the way you said, you know, the solution in, in itself doesn't have to be one or the other, doesn't, it doesn't have to be only diplomacy and, and no, and, and all appeasement. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be nuclear submarines and no diplomacy. That balance um, is, is an antidote to that extreme polarization that we're seeing. So, 
we're constantly being encouraged to side with one side or the other. No, we need the nuclear subs. No, 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 we don't need any, we don't need any uh, defense deterrent. Instead of um, seeing how there's uh, often, there's a bit of both. There's, there's a bit of bullshit on both sides. There's a bit of truth on both sides. And uh, I feel the more we can maintain that perspective when, whenever it applies, because sometimes maybe it doesn't apply, but I think in this case it does, um, the more we can avoid being played uh, uh, in, in a game um, uh, such as the ones that Scott Morrison and, uh, and, and others are, are, are quite um, happy for us to, to play. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights. Um, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we finish off? I, I think just as you were speaking then, uh, I was thinking that almost all of the problems that we deal with uh, internationally are wicked problems. And all that means is they've got many, many moving parts. It's the complexity of reality. They all bump into each other in surprising ways. And as you try to solve wicked problems, your answers are always sloppy. And you just should accept that because the, the best fun you ever have in public policy, and I can tell you this because I've been in it for over 50 years now, the best fun you ever have in public policy is that each day you jump out of bed you go to your desk and you've got a different problem for the one you had yesterday. That's the nature of sloppy answers. And that is what we should be investing our skills in, learning from what we did yesterday, but understanding that there's been a, a just a subtle change in the way in which things work today. And it's well within our intellectual gifts to be able to deal with that and not be frightened of complexity not trying to be reductionists, not trying to put everything as a confected binary. You know, you can either have bread or you can have cake. Well, that's not the reality of the world. You can have rice. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Alan. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with us today on the Juice Media podcast. Um, hopefully we'll, we can have you back again uh, to talk about some of these issues. Thank uh, thanks for making the time for us. Thank you very much, Giordano. Bye-bye. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I hope you got something out of my chat with Alan. I want to stress that Alan's is just one perspective on this issue. It's a perspective I personally share much in common with, but I encourage you to read and listen to a range of voices so that you can form your own views on this topic with the proviso that it's best to focus on voices that are evidence-based and that if anyone tries to paint this complex issue in black and white as a case of good versus evil, well, be sure to have your bullshit detector turned up on high alert because it genuinely is complex and messy and only by embracing that complexity can we hope to avoid simplistic solutions, like going to war? And fucked if we're gonna let some numpties drag us into that again. A reminder that this podcast is available on your favorite podcast app, but that we also publish a video version on our YouTube channel. Thanks to Ellen for helping to produce and edit the Juice Media podcast. And as always, thanks to you, our patrons who make the podcast and the Honest Government ads possible. Special shout out to our patron producers who support us via our highest tier of $100 a month. Thank you. If you value our work, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash the juice media. You've been listening to the juice media podcast with me, Giordano. I'll catch you very soon for our next honest government ad till then take care.